me invite you again to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. We return today for the penultimate sermon in this series. For those of you who don't like words that begin with P, that means the next to the last one. Uh, next week is our final sermon. We'll consider the 13th chapter. We've said from the beginning that uh, the book of Hebrews is a uh, letter that is written with a pastoral tone. The purpose, or if you will, process that he uses is pastoral. We know that because uh, he self-identifies that way in the next chapter that we will look at next week. He calls this entire letter an exhortation. He's trying to encourage, and he does so with a stick. Now, some of us have been encouraged with a stick many times in our life. Proverbial stick, let's be clear. Uh, Some literal stick, but most of us a proverbial stick. And uh, we know that there is power, as it were, in such encouragement. And the Lord uses such encouragement uh, throughout the book of Hebrews as he offers a, a testimony of the greatness of God. He warns us, don't forget that. And then he offers us a testimony of the greatness of God. And then he warns us, don't forget that. He does it in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12. And he's going to do it again next week in chapter 13. I've told you what you need to do. Now don't forget that. And if you do forget that, you will go to hell. So there are sticks and then there are sticks, right? And so as we read today, we are greatly encouraged. Some of the greatest theological statements in Hebrews are contained in the 12th chapter. So if you like your theology deep and wide, then this is your chapter. We're going to get into some good stuff here. So let's read together, beginning in verse 3. Last time we were in this chapter, we just read two verses. Today we're going to read a lot more. Let's read chapter 12, verse 3, through the end of the chapter. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, 
Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable, uh, innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. <laughs> and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Mm. My, oh my, we should take six months and just preach that again and again and again and again. But we won't. We're going to take 30 minutes, so here we go. I want you to consider three things with me, and we'll start in the first paragraph that we read, beginning in verse 3. Simply, from the outset, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. He uses that verb in verse 3. He's used it many times already in the book of Hebrews. He does it again. Consider him who endured such, uh, rather from sinners, such hostility against himself. Think about this, uh, he's saying. I want you to not forget Jesus. Consider what you know to be true of Jesus. Consider his hardships, how he came as a child and had to flee to Egypt and how he came back and was raised and uh, then, as an adult, has come to Jerusalem in order to uh, ultimately be brutalized, to be maligned, to be mocked, to be persecuted, and then finally to be crucified. Consider the hardships of Jesus. Consider his persecution. Consider his condemnation. And then, 
Also consider his endurance. Notice he says in verse 3 that we are to consider his life so that we may not grow weary. In other words, his point, that is the highlight that he wants to call out in our memory of Jesus, is that Jesus went through all of that and he didn't quit. Consider his endurance. Consider the fact that Jesus did not grow weary. If you will, look back at verse 2, verse that we read two weeks ago. Jesus uh, is described as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seating, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider the endurance of Jesus. He endured the cross for you. So he makes a, a series of applications or exhortations based on looking to Jesus. And they're just going to work through them very quickly in this paragraph. Uh, there's a lot to say here, but I've got to go quick. So look at verse 3. He says, an application is that, uh, verse 3, don't let your hardships turn you from Christ. So you are threatened by the opportunity to get weary. You are threatened with the opportunity to become faint-hearted. But don't. Don't let your hardships turn you away from Christ. Consider Jesus, who didn't allow his hardships to turn him away from the Father. Likewise, you emulate Jesus. Be like Jesus. Notice in verse 4, he mentions it's hard, but it's clearly worse for others. He uses this phrase that some could treat as trivial, and I don't want to, though my personality would often do this, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I'm going to say something that seems trite, and I don't mean for it to be, but I I will say simply, it could be worse. You could be dead. We have a tendency as people to overestimate our burdens. Overestimate our burdens. You're not the first to have trouble. You're not first to have your trouble. You're not first to have a lot of trouble. And you won't be the last. So don't overestimate your burdens. Instead, know that you have company. There's the old adage, misery loves company. That's not what this is saying. Rather, this is saying that in the midst of your sorrows, don't overestimate, keep your eyes on Jesus. Notice he says in verse 5, the Lord is working to train you, train you. Now, most of us don't perceive our trials or our hardships or our difficulties as the Lord's hand. Most of us perceive our trials as uh, the hand of Satan or the hand of a demon or the hand of some malady or some worldly force or some unknown power. Or maybe the cause is more earthly. It's the cause of my husband or the cause of my father or the cause of my wife or the cause of my children. And all this happens because I have a lousy boss or because my neighbor is such a bad person or whatever. We have a tendency to blame, 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 blame. I'm not suggesting there's not plenty of blame to go around. I am suggesting that if you lift your eyes a little higher, none of that stuff gets to you unless the Lord allows it. 
So what's going on in Hebrews? Written in the latter part of the first century. Christians don't have it really, really good in the first century. The notion that the culture is just all warm and cuddly to Jesus' people is completely false. In fact, the culture is completely anti-Christianity. As is evidenced by the response that the Apostle Paul gets again and again and again. Read Paul's testimony. He's beaten pretty regularly. He's imprisoned pretty regularly. Listen, if, if you don't believe that there's a place for jail ministry, you, you don't believe that the Apostle Paul had much of a ministry because much of the New Testament that we have is written from jail. There's a tendency to think that these hardships that I'm experiencing in my life, they are the result of all sorts of terrible things and that somehow God is not involved. And yet the writer of Hebrews has a much higher view of our troubles. And he says, verse 5, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, he quotes Proverbs 3. Now, I'm going to read Proverbs 3.11 verbatim from Proverbs, and you compare it to what you read right here in Hebrews. Here's Proverbs 3.11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That's pretty close, wouldn't you say, here? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In other words, the Lord is working to train you as sons, as sons and daughters, as children of God. Notice several things about these verses. Notice he begins to comment on them. By the way, this is also a quote from Job chapter 5. I might read that, Job chapter 5. Verse 17, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Even Job is under the discipline of the Lord. Job is the most righteous man on the face of the earth at the time of his affliction. And we learn that part of God's plan in Job's life is to train him to be even better. So you may say, well, I'm beyond training. Well, in that case, get ready, because here comes the trainer. You're not beyond training. The Lord is busy training. Notice several things he makes in a series of statements. Notice in verse 5 that he loves us. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. Many, many, many people think that when the Lord disciplines, he disciplines in anger. This is a typical experience of assigning human reaction upon God and saying, because I'm this way, God is this way. That is bogus, not true, it's a lie. 
It'll wound your soul and wound your understanding of God. God does not discipline his children in the manner in which men and women discipline their children, exasperated with no understanding of how this is going to turn out. I've just lashed out. I've just reacted boldly. God does not work this way ever as regards his children. He loves us and he disciplines us perfectly for us. We all know this. If you have multiple children, you don't parent them the same. Now, you wish you could. In the name of fairness, it's not fair that he and she and they and those. The notion that somehow all children are the same, they need to be parented the same, it's not fact. Just not. Some of your children are real compliant. Some of your children ain't never seen compliant. And you have to parent with a different firmness, a different hand. And the point, of course, is the motivation is the same. You love them, but you respond based on them. How does God discipline his children? He disciplines them not only with love, but he disciplines them with perfect wisdom. Let me tell you something, friend. God knows you better than you. And he's at work in your life. So he's writing to the Hebrews, and he's saying, don't fret about the Lord's discipline. Don't be confused by the Lord's discipline. Don't turn away because it's hard. The threat here is that you would turn away from Jesus. You would receive the Lord's discipline and say, well, I hate you, God, because you're allowing this. Hear the example of Scripture. Hear Job. This this is a quote from Job. Hear Job. What does Job do? In all of this, he did not curse God. His wife's counsel was, curse God and die. Put an end to it. Turn away. Be done with him. Cut your losses and die. And Job said, I will not. I will not deny my God. Have you or are you in the midst of a circumstance or series of circumstances that threaten your confidence in God? That doesn't make you unusual. It is to suggest that you should be careful in those circumstances, not to lessen your grip. Consider Jesus, his hardship and his endurance, who endured such hostility against himself, and then think about your troubles And think about the Lord's hand in your life. He loves you. Notice in verse 6 and again in verse 8, he reminds us that the Lord chastises every son whom he receives. In other words, he's treating you like his own. He's treating you like his own. Notice what he says in verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You're not his children. If you're left without discipline, if the Lord does not get in your business, then you have no business with God. You feel me on that? People say all the time, oh, God and I are good. Really? Does God think so? Really, it really doesn't matter what you think, friend. Ultimately, it really matters whether the Father knows you at all. That's what matters. The Lord is working with his own. And he does it in ways that we might not choose. 
Even as a child receives discipline from his earthly father, he wouldn't choose that earthly discipline. I know I did wrong, Dad. I know I completely disobeyed you. I know I even rebelled against you. But I really don't want the consequences, so let's not do that. Well, six-year-old little Johnny, it really is not a democracy. You're going to be disciplined because this is exactly what happens when your father loves you. So it is for discipline that you endure. The Lord is working to train you. Notice in verse 7, discipline teaches us endurance. Discipline actually makes us stronger. It is for discipline that you endure. Notice in verse 9, discipline is a prerequisite for heaven. Besides this, he says, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. We respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Live. That, that word live there is a reference to live eternally and live. Notice in verse 10, this is done for our good to share his holiness. Notice in verse 14, so that holiness is the gateway without which no one will see the Lord. Put all those things together, live. The Lord disciplines us so that we live. The Lord disciplines us for our holiness. And this holiness provides then the entrance into heaven. So then discipline is a prerequisite for heaven. Listen, if the Lord takes his hand off of you, you are not going to heaven. I had a football coach back in the day who was a pretty hard charger. He used to say on day one, if I quit calling your name and if I quit well, he used other language. But if I, if I quit staying on you, then you need to quit because I don't care about you anymore. If I'm not coaching you, I'm not interested in you. So if the Lord's not disciplining you, you're not his. So don't overreact. Don't misreact to the Lord's discipline. Apparently there was a threat to the Hebrews that they were tempted to forget God. And then lastly he says in verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So look beyond the moment. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. As our children have reached adulthood, we've had many opportunities to reflect upon moments of discipline when they were children reflect positively by the way on the main for the most part occasionally they will say dad you blew it which is right by the way very important i can remember the greatest and susan can too the greatest moment of exasperation the greatest moment of frustration the greatest moment of failure as a parent that i ever experienced i'll never forget that day and I have apologized profusely to my children. I think it's really important that when you blow it, you do apologize. But let's be clear. God doesn't blow it, so you deserve no apology from God. God does not have to defend himself from the manner in which he loves you, from the manner in which he trains you, from the manner in which he shows you his will so look beyond the moment to the goal to the purpose 
Consider Jesus. That's the point he makes. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Jesus endured hostility. Jesus endured hardship. If you have this theology that says, if I follow God, I won't have it hard, then God owes an apology to Jesus. And God doesn't owe any apologies. So consider Jesus. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says, verse 12 and following, is lean in and don't turn away. This is the section where he comes in strong on the warning side. I'll show you this in a moment. But I want you to notice the verbs that he uses. In verse 12, he uses the word lift your drooping hands, then strengthen your weak knees. Verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails. These are words of action. Lift, straighten, make straight, strive, see to it. Words of action. In other words, you are to lean in. When you receive the Lord's discipline, when you experience hardship or suffering or difficulty or hardship in this life, when you experience these things, lean in. The Lord is at work. The Lord is busy. The Lord is helping. The Lord, the Lord is moving me along. The Lord is training. Some of you are paying good money to go to gymnasiums where people make you hurt. And you come away next month and you do it all again. Why do you do that? Because it's good for you. It's good for you to strain. It's good for you to strive. It's good for you to lift. It's good for you to strengthen. It's good to you that you see to it. Because if you don't see to it, it will be seeing to you. Be careful that you lean in and that you take responsibility. Don't turn away. Don't turn away. He uses an illustration here that may or may not be extremely familiar, but it is often misunderstood. So let me point it out to you. Notice verse 15 and following. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Esau. So his illustration is Esau. We'll consider that in a moment. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he despised to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. <clears throat> so, let, let's, uh, let's consider the, <clears throat> the typical narrative of Esau that is wrong. This is the wrong story of Esau. And then I'm going to show you how this passage comments on Genesis 27 and shows us that the typical understanding of Esau is wrong and that the right understanding of Esau actually encourages us. All right? So the story of Esau is found in Genesis 25, 6, and 7. Don't turn there now, but I would encourage you to read it again. All right, you'll remember that Esau is the older brother. <clears throat> And in the Jewish system, the older brother possesses the birthright. The birthright. 
That means he's the, he's the lineage. He's the, the one who has a, a, a premier spot. He's the firstborn. So in the Jewish system, the firstborn is the lineage. Now Esau and Jacob are twins. But Esau is first. So he's born seconds, minutes, we don't know exactly how much, but he's born first. So Jacob is not, as it were, the, the one who has the birthright. As a result, uh, when people come to the end of their lives, their fathers transfer a blessing. And that blessing is tied to the birthright. So the blessing of the firstborn is always a more substantial blessing. He gets more of the father's inheritance. He gets more of the father's responsibility. He gets more of the father's reputation. He gets, he gets more. The blessing is bigger. Different. If you possess the birthright. Now, if you remember the story, Esau is hungry in Genesis 25, 6, and 7, and he sells his birthright for a, a bowl of stew. So I don't know what you're thinking about for lunch. I mean, it may be a fabulous lunch. I don't know what you're thinking about for dinner. Maybe fabulous dinner. But it's not worth selling your birthright for. Can we agree on this? All right? There is no cook no chef in Mississippi who's that good. And there is no pain of hunger that you're experiencing today or any day that's that valuable, that you would sell your birthright. But Esau did that. Now, before you go off making Esau some sort of victim, understand, nobody forced him to do that. He did it because inside Esau, the verb in the Hebrew is he despised his birthright. Now, when we use that term, despise, that connotes hatred and disdain and marginalization. You're a non-person. I just don't want anything to do with you. I wish you were gone. Despise, a very, 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 very strong English word. In the Hebrew, it may not have quite the emotion tied to it, but it still disregards that value. You think that's valuable? I don't. I could care less. Despise it. The scripture says in Genesis 25, 6 and 7 that Esau despised his birthright. And then when he realized that he didn't get a blessing because he had forfeited his birthright, he went back to his father in tears and asked for a blessing. Well, the point, of course, is once the blessing is gone, there's nothing left. Once the blessing is given away, it's not in the father's purview to give it again or to give it to you or to take it back, or anything else. The point, of course, is there is a timing associated with what Esau did, and the ship has sailed. So he comes back, and even though he appealed to his father in tears, there was nothing left to give. 
The timing was gone. The issue of Esau and the illustration of Esau is an illustration that there is a sense of timing and Esau closed the window and the window is no longer possible to be opened. Now, his point is, again, read it, read it with me. His point is that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward... When the time was gone, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent. There's no chance. The point is, there is an opportunity for you to come to Christ. The point is, there's an opportunity for you to live for Christ. And that's called your lifetime. And following your lifetime, there is no more opportunity. There is no more chance. The illustration of Esau is an illustration of time. Esau had time, and he blew it. Esau had time, and he forfeited it. Esau had time, and he squandered it. Esau had time, and he sold it away. Esau had time, and he despised it. He didn't have any regard for it. Now, again, we could go on and on. We won't. But you'll notice in verse 16 that he is referenced as a sexually immoral or unholy man. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically what his sexual immorality might have been. There is only one reference, perhaps, Genesis 26. He marries foreign wives, Hittites. These are Canaanites. These are outside the faith. It's not a racial issue. It's a faith issue. There's no prohibition against interracial marriage in the Bible. None. Get over it. But there is prohibition, strong prohibition, against interfaith marriage. Therefore, Christians should not marry non-Christians. End of story. They should not. Christians are prohibited from marrying non-Christians. Every pastor worth his salt will not do a wedding for a Christian to a non-Christian. The Bible references Esau's sin, sexually immoral. How is he sexually immoral? We don't know, except that he marries outside of his faith. There is little concern for holy things in Esau's life. He sells his birthright for one meal. Genesis 25 is very clear. He despises his birthright, and he is considered to be unholy. He does not regard the things of God as sacred. So the warning of Esau is don't forsake the way of Christ for the way of the world. Now put it all together. What's he saying in the paragraph? He's saying, first of all, lift strengthen, make straight, strive, see to it, and don't fail like Esau did. Don't fail. Don't think that somehow, once you've squandered everything and given it all away, turned away from it, that you just got all the time in the world and it's just kind of a, you know, hey, I'm, I'm back, you know, no harm, no foul. No, friend. No, there's an issue of timing here. I always think of the parable of the, the ten virgins. Virgins a reference there to bridesmaids. So there's a groom. There's a groom, and he's delayed. And so these bridesmaids are there to assist the bride and, and celebrate the groom. And that's the cultural way a wedding would have been done. And so five of the bridesmaids, virgins in the parable, run out of oil 
and they go to get oil for their lamps. And while they're gone, the bridegroom who had been delayed shows up, and it's time for the show. It's time to get married. And five of the bridesmaids are ready. They had plenty of oil, and five of the bridesmaids are missing because they've gone to get oil. You see, we think we know how much time we have. But friend, you don't know. Your friends don't know. Your family doesn't know. Only the bridegroom knows. So lean in and don't turn away. Don't throw it away. Don't sell it away. Don't give it away. Don't settle for something else. Lean in. Look to Jesus. And then he comes to the third paragraph, verse 18. And he simply invites us to come to the Father. Come to the Father. And you can only come to the Father through Jesus. And he makes it clear. But he uses an illustration from the Old Testament that is so, so vivid. I've uh, reminded you of this several weeks ago. But you'll recall that in uh, the time of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, God tells Moses to tell the people, I'm going to bring you up on Mount Sinai, and I want you to, in a, in a, in a word, fence the mountain. Fence the mountain. So there, there's this great mountain. God's going to meet with Moses. How about I want you to fence the mountain? You can read all this in Exodus. But he says, if any person touches this mountain while I'm talking to you, I will kill him. And if any animal gets loose from your flocks and touches this mountain while I'm talking to you, I will kill them. This is a holy mountain. This is a fearsome mountain. And you'll recall that the people said, tell us no more, tell us no more, tell us no more. We don't want to hear about the terror of God. We don't. We don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to process that. We are scared of this God. And Moses, in effect, goes on to say, even I tremble to know this is the God that I am about to encounter. Now contrast that. These, those of us, we are new covenant Christians. We live thousands of years later. We 2,000 years after the coming of Christ. And now we have an entirely different kind of relationship. Now, the, 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 great, the great, if you will, extreme of God that's postulated in the culture is that God is this big, warm, heavenly sugar daddy. And that God just gives out blessings to people. He's just so kind and so merciful. He just, he just says all these wonderful things and he has no regard for sin. He doesn't really care that you're a sinner. He doesn't really care that you're a bad person, that you're immoral, that you're, you're unbelieving. He doesn't really care. God, that's the contemporary view of God. We've gone completely in the other direction. Somewhere in the middle, there is a holy God who invites us to come and call him Abba. Which is, the, which is the term of endearment. Some have likened it to the word daddy. I think that's too common, too, if you will, too, I don't know. I don't like it. I don't use it. 
but there, there, there is a tenderness to God, and he makes clear that we can now have access. And so the whole point is that there is this mountain in the Old Testament called Sinai, and Sinai is the place of God's terror. Contrast that with Zion. Zion is the mountain of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built at the foot. The city of David is located at the foot of this mountain, and use the word mountain in sort of Mississippi terms, right? Mountains in Israel are not mountains, they're hills. But there's this huge, huge little hill, and that mountain is called Zion. And the temple is located there. And what happens in the temple? There, the people of God have access to God. Now, they, they have it in the Old Covenant through the high priest. The high priest takes the blood of the goat in on the Day of Atonement, which Yom Kippur is coming up on your calendar, and you'll say, what is Yom Kippur? It's the Day of Atonement. It's the day that the high priest in the Old Testament would take the sins of the, the people and place them on the back of an animal and sacrifice that animal. Then he would place the blood of that animal on a second called a scapegoat, and he would drive that goat into the wilderness. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was the day when Israel had access to the Holy of Holies. And what happens when Jesus dies? The, the veil, the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place is torn in two, symbolizing that now you, friend, you, you, not through a high priest of this life, but you through a high priest of the life to come, Jesus, that's the point of Hebrews, Jesus is your high priest. He has entered behind the veil and opened it up and says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest from your labors, from your work, from your burdens, from your sorrows, from your suffering, from your hardships. I will be your place of rest. Come to me. Jesus gives us access to God. That's the point he makes. Look here, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words may the ears beg that no further messages come. But it's verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. <coughs> Excuse me. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. <coughs> In other words, his exhortation is come to the Father through the Son. Come to God through Jesus. That's who you are. That's what you are. That's what you should be doing. So as Christian people, what's our hope here? Our hope is that we live in the, the realm of Zion, not the realm of Sinai. If you're an ancient Hebrew converted to Christ, you're hearing voices about how you've left the family. You've left the family faith. You've left the family religion. You're a Christian. Come on back home. Come on back home. Come on back home to Judaism, come back home to sacrifices, come back home to the rituals, come back home to the old covenant, come back home. That's, that's where you were born, that's where you should live, that's where you're going to die. 
it turns out that will damn you to hell. Now, that's not our experience as predominantly Gentiles, dare I say, even all of us Gentiles here. My experience is not Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Instead, those things that call out to me are ancient sins, old sins, old commitments, old desires. And they call out to me as they call out to you in your life. Come away from Christ. Christ is not the satisfaction he professes to be. Christ is a lie. Christ is a deceiver. Christ is not the way. Christ is not the truth. That's the voice that calls out to us. Or when it gets hard, the hardships force us to evaluate what we believe about God, what we believe about hope, what we believe about this life, what we believe about equity, fairness, so-called. Well, it's not fair. You know, I'm struggling and he's not, and I'm better than him. First of all, you don't know if you're better than him. Number two, it doesn't matter. Neither one of you are any good. There's none good. No, not one. You see, none of us are going except by the blood of Christ. None of us are going unless somebody goes in behind that curtain and does business. None of us are going. So I really get tired of comparing myself to you. Because if I'm truthful, I lose every time. Instead, I just need to keep comparing myself to me. And there again, I lose every time. And the only hope I have is that God will forgive me and make me whole and take away my stain and give me peace or rest. My only hope of rest, my only hope of Mount Zion, my only hope of participating in this festal gathering with innumerable angels is that the Zion of God will welcome me home. If you're not looking for a city whose maker and builder is God, a city that has foundations, a city built on Zion, then you're not going there because only those looking for it get to go. But having decided to go, don't ever turn away and think that somehow the world has something better to offer. No, they don't. I'll leave you with the last two verses of this paragraph, this section, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful receiving, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Yes, indeed. Let us remember that God has invited us to Zion to call him Abba, Father, to come in past the curtain and to do business with him. But let us never forget that this is serious life and death and that the consuming fire of God is always there for those who turn away. Let us turn to Christ and never turn away. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you that you love us and that in this moment right now, you are dealing with us. Help us, Father, to joy, find joy in you, to make much of you, to strive to 
keep our affections on you. We pray, God, for your mercies, your grace to continue. How we love you, how we thank you, how we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who's gone before us, and the one who stands at your right hand today, praying, making intercession for us. In the name of Jesus, we call you Father, and we love you for your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.